Nellie and I really want to uh, thank everybody for your texts and cards and calls so far, and uh, we really feel loved and appreciate it. Um, and as I kind of gave you an update in the newsletter, um, I'm going to need more of that in the next uh, couple of months. I got so much to uh, take care of, but uh, if you can uh, continue to remember that I covet your prayer and support. And uh, I think coveting prayer and support is okay. I don't think that's included in thou shall not covet. So in Revelation 4, what we learned last week, actually let me start by saying that uh, one thing that uh, I was asked to do if we were going to begin to tackle uh, this, this subject of end time living and nation and empire and true worship and false worship, Revelation 12, 13, and 14, and various other places. We'll go to Revelation 19 at one time. We'll, uh, we'll check a lot of Revelation out. I was asked if we could please kind of recap. And I love to recap, except my problem is, is I don't know when to stop. And I usually go like way too far back, and I end up preaching half of last week's sermons. But I will try not to do that. I will try to get better at summarizing and recapping. But in Revelation 4, we saw, actually, we didn't see the one who sits on the throne. In fact, that's all he's described as in Revelation 4. Remember, John can't name him. He doesn't see him. He can't describe him. He describes the throne. He describes what it looks like. He describes the scene. But all he says about the one on the throne is, and the one on the throne. But all of creation is worshiping him. Like I said, John doesn't see him. There's no name. There's no classification of this uh, one on the throne. And all we know is that he is considered holy, 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 and that he's also worthy to be there, that he's worthy of the worship of all creation. But we learned in chapter five, the worship is stopped. It's silenced. There is no more worship of the one on the throne because there's a scroll sitting on the throne that is sealed that no one can open. And the only one can open was who? The lamb that was slain. John is, is comforted. He cries. He weeps because there's no one who is worthy. And apparently not even the one on the throne is worthy. But after the lamb that was slain shows up, he is given the scroll, and then all of the worship in chapter four is now given to the one who is on the throne, who is the lamb that was slain. But there is one part to that lamb's rule. There is one part, as with in Revelation four. But in Revelation five, there's one part of the universe that is not subject to his rule. What part is that? Here. This tiny little speck of a planet in all the universe is the one part that is not subject to the rule of the lamb that was slain. It's the one part that has rejected his rulership. That there's many, many opposed and that there are others who don't even know what the Bible testifies of here or what the rest of the universe is testifying. Listen to it this way. Jesus' kingship at the present time is one limited by the citizens of this kingdom. However, the book depicts the process which he gradually conquers. And how does Jesus conquer? He conquers through the church. 
through us, through his church. And how do we conquer? We conquer by gradually adding to the kingdom, do we not? Go unto, uh, unto all the world and do what? Win them. Make disciples. Win them. Teach them everything that I have taught you. Baptize them. Make them disciples. So this gradual winning is the way that the world, that the, the, this kingdom is conquered and will be conquered. Becoming a Christian is a process of naturalization. Becoming an adopted citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We became naturalized when we accepted the king. Amen? We may be naturalized citizens in wherever we are in this kingdom, but when we accepted the king and what he's done for us, we became naturalized citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So we then go about participating in this conquering. One day the appeal will go out to the whole world and everyone will be confronted, if you will, as to which kingdom they wish to be a part of. You and I are confronted with that every day. Every time somebody hears the gospel, we get the confrontation, which kingdom do you want to be part of? So if we want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, we will play by their rules, not this one. Because this one is ruled by another force, if you will. This one has a different definition of conquering than we do. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the two definitions. Remember, we, we are now confronted, if you will, with two gods. And each of those gods have a church. And in the end time, it is the true church and the false church that do battle. It's not the church against the world. The world is still the battlefield in which it takes place, but it's these two churches. And they both have different definitions of worship. Both of these gods ask for our worship in different ways. In other words, if you're going to be a, a, a member of the Church of the Beast, you, he asks for your worship, for a different motive for worshiping than the lamb that was slain. Different definition of conquering, a different definition of war, a different definition of evangelism. And I want to look at the rules of worshiping in each of these churches. We're in Revelation 12. We left off in verse 5. We can read that again because it goes with verse 6 as we move on. She gave birth to a son, a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. We, we were shown the vision last week. We were shown two visions. One was the woman, the church, the source of all light to a dark planet. She's, she's clothed in the sun, standing on the, uh, on the moon, and, and she uh, has a crown of stars. She is the source of all light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. That's you and me now. We are his light to the world. And she's in labor. And the dragon, the other god in this, in this scene, he's standing and he wants the baby, right? But he doesn't get the baby. The baby was snatched and taken where? To heaven, right to the throne room. And that's where we spent last week in Revelation 5 is that throne room. So I'm gonna bring it back now to here. 
And it says, and the woman fled into the wilderness. So as soon as the baby was taken, the woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. So Jesus ascends to the throne. The woman, his church then, as soon as that happens, has to flee into the wilderness. It sounds like she's a refugee now, doesn't it? There's something the matter. A place prepared by God. She has to be nourished in the wilderness. A place prepared by God for a long, long time. We're going to learn this, but 1,260 days, okay, is not just like three and a half years. How long is it? It's, it's, it's a one, you know, one and a quarter of a millennium. It's 1,260 years. She's going to have to be there for a long, long time. And we will unlock everything that's happening here. And we will look at it. But why must she do this? Why does she have to do this? We don't have an explanation, except that as the vision moves on, we're told this. Because of the dragon's nature, we're given a history lesson. The woman is in the wilderness because of the dragon's nature. And here we find out John decides that he's going to give us a lesson in the dragon's nature. War broke out. Where? So the dragon is originally not from here. The dragon is originally from where? It's from heaven. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But they were, what? Defeated. And there was no longer any place for them where? In heaven. So how does the dragon get what he wants? If we look upon the dragon as another god in this scenario that has a church, has a following, has a way to worship him, how does a dragon get what he wants? He starts a what? He starts a war. With a particular definition. War has a definition with this god or this dragon, if you will. He, he goes to war. He fights a war. Although, as I was struggling with this, uh, you know, taking a look at this, it's very interesting, and, I, and I'm wondering, I really wonder, because sometimes it doesn't matter at all what the order is happening in a verse. Sometimes it doesn't matter at all, but I wonder if it matters this time, because actually, if, if, you, if you look at this literally, war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fight against the dragon. Who's the first one fighting? <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? The rebellion comes second. The rebellion is a reaction to Michael and his angels fighting. We're going to come back to this, I think. I think we'll come back to this. But I haven't fleshed it out yet, so I just wanted to put it out there. What kind of fight is Michael and his angels doing first? Because that's what I want to talk about this week. That's what we're getting at this week. Because the definition of fighting in the church of the lamb that was slain versus the definition of fighting in the church of the beast and the dragon, two completely different definitions. If you buy into both natures, if you buy into the nature of God as given to us by the lamb that was slain and the nature of the dragon, who he will then give to the beasts to create his church. So I'm wondering, we'll come back to this. So fighting Michael, the leader of his angels, Michael is a leader. We're one of the very few churches that teaches that Michael is who? Yeah. 
is Jesus. Very few, if any, that I know of, mainstream evangelical uh, uh, churches uh, around today believe that Michael is Jesus. They have some pretty good reasons for, for reasoning not. We have some pretty good reasons for reasoning that he is, okay? I'll give you the one that's my favorite and the most important is that it's the name himself, Michael. If you were to put this right next to Emmanuel, Okay, you would have two sentences. Michael is not a name, it's a sentence in Hebrew. And Michael is the Greek derivative of that Hebrew sentence. Who is like God? Me is a preposition that is a question that just, an imperative question that it just answers, asks who? And El, as we know, El, El Shaddai, uh, uh, Elohenu, you know, El is what? Is God. So literally, Michael is a question. Who is like God? Emmanuel is not a name either. Emmanuel is a full sentence in Hebrew. God is with us. Emmanuel, Michael. So every time that his name is said, it's a question that's being asked. So let me ask you this. Rhetorically, who is like God? No one. <laughs> right? Rhetorically, there is no one like God. Amen? Absolutely no one, except Sam was right. We do know this about the no one being like God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being what has come into being. So there's only one like God. There is only one like the Father, and that is who? That is the Son. And you read all through John chapter five and six and seven, and Jesus talks about it all the time. No one knows the Father like the Son, and no one knows the Son like the Father. How? How can no one, absolutely no one, know the Father better than the Son? Because the Son is the Father. You can't know somebody better than that. Not one amen. See a lot of nods. So that's why I believe that Michael is Jesus. I have a real interesting theory about why he appears as an angel, but we'll talk about that later. Michael, who is like God? And he says that he's like God because he also is the creator, according to John, right here, right? How many things came into being because of Jesus? Everything came into being. There was not one thing that did not come into being because of Jesus. Why? Because the Son and the Father are what? They're one, okay? And we do know that the Holy Spirit is the life force in that creation. So you have them all three right there at creation. And Revelation 4 said that what made God worthy to be on the throne, that one that was getting this universal um, uh, praise, you know, in, in chapter 4, is because that he was what? It's because he was the creator. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you what? For you created all things, and by your will, they existed. So that's what makes him worthy. So what makes Jesus worthy? What makes the lamb worthy? First of all, he's what? He's creator. And then from last week, there were two things that made him worthy. Two things. One of them was, was that he was a human, that he was the son of man. 
He became the Son of Man to do what? To save us, right? And he was slain in order to save us. That's what makes now him worthy. He's creator and he's recreator. It hit me that, that when he came and did what he did, when he became the lamb that was slain, he was creating, wasn't he? He was recreating. He was recreating what the dragon had ruined. And what you and I in participating with the dragon had ruined. So Jesus creating means that he was just doing what he had always done. He created. That's what makes the lamb worthy. Now I hinted at something and, and, and I need you to bear with me because I'm gonna say something that may be controversial, I don't know. I never know when I say it, I don't know who is going to uh, really be bugged by this, but I believe that there are two creations and two creators. I'm gonna start with actual creation. I'm gonna start with actual life-giving creation. The creation that this verse talks about. Listen to the language of creation. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and just listen to the language of creation. Because in listening to the language, you'll get an idea. You'll get an idea then of how this God works. How this lamb that was slain God works. And us who, who, who claim to be worshipers of that God, maybe we, we need to take a look and to remember what, he, what the statement he makes about creation. Listen, listen to the language. God said, let the earth put forth, what? Vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was what? And it was so, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind, bearing fruit with the seed in it, and God saw that it was what? That it was good. Do you hear the language? Yielding, bringing forth, giving. All the food that the creature king and king were going to need is what? Given to them. They don't have to take it. Something doesn't have to be taken from in order to give it to them. The language of this creator is what? Is giving. God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the dome of the sky to what? To give light upon the earth and it was what? And it was so. The whole reason that all the lights that we have in the sky is just that so you and I can know days, seasons, and times. Light does nothing but what? Gives. By the way, we're the only creatures that don't want it at times. The whole universe wants this light all the time. We're the only ones that can make light an enemy. Because light illumines what? Everything. And there are some things we don't want illumined, right? But the creation is willing to what? Is willing to give. We can take it. The light doesn't take from us. So lights are for seasons and times. It's given. It's given. So the nature of the creator is the nature of his creation. Creation was meant to what? Is to give. Creation lives for some reason outside of itself. It was created to give. 
And what does that mean to us? Well, when he says, let's make humanity in our own image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that is upon the earth. He gave it all to who? He gave it all to us. By the way, the reason that he could do that is because back then, it was safe to do that. Creation was safe in our hands because we were born in his image. That means we had his nature. That means we could give as much as the creation could give. Creation was safe until when? Until the fall. When we adopt a new nature, we begin to play by a different set of rules. And now nature is no longer safe in our hands, is it? Take a look around. So I said that he has a govern of rule over all this. Creation shows us this God, this God of this church, the church of the lamb that was slain, it has a rule. What he decided that the rule over his universe was going to be would be based on these principles. So let me ask you this. What kind of rule, what kind of governments is it, governance is it, is that all things created and living don't live for themselves, but they live for purposes outside themselves. What would you call that? What would you call something or someone that has a nature that does absolutely nothing for themselves? You call it what? You call it love. So we know and I believe, this is the verse right, that Arlene just shared with us, we know, have known and believe that love that God has for us, God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. This is his rule. See, if there's one entity in all the universe, uh, created, uncreated, if you, if you want, to, want to share, if there's one entity in all the universe that could decide what they wanted to be, it was God, wasn't it? I think we can argue all we want about God, but one thing you can't argue with about God is he could be anything, anyone that he wanted to be. And what did he decide was going to rule his universe? Love. What else? Nothing else. He takes this all the way to the wall. He doesn't give up on it when it gets too hard. And who was the one that made it hard? We did. But he didn't give up on love, did he? He didn't give up on it at all. You know how I know? Because after the fall, he came back the next day, didn't he? Did he have to? No. By the way, by the letter of the law, by the letter of the law, there was no reason that he had to come back. If he would have not come back and left Adam and Eve to die, it would have been after he told them it was going to happen. So there wouldn't have been one creature in the universe that could not accuse him of being just. If all God was was just, he would have let Adam and Eve die because he warned them ahead of time, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He could have washed his hands and walked away and still been just, but that wasn't good enough for him. He came back the next day, did he not? Why? Because he loved them. So, 
Love is the governing or ruling force of this creator. We worship this creator. If you wanna worship this creator, you're gonna have to get your mind around that you're gonna have to end up being what? You're gonna end up having to be loving. In fact, some ways, not just loving, you're gonna end up having to be love. Sounds easy at first, doesn't it? But I always wondered uh, if your story was kind of like mine. Was, was your new identity as a lover of all humans, how long was it before that was challenged after your baptism? Did anybody drive home after their baptism? <laughs> mine was challenged the very first red light I came to. I've done a lot of driving in the past couple months. And you know what? I think that our culture and getting around by automobiles has done absolutely nothing for us to grow to be loving creatures. Are you with me? But if you're gonna worship this God, if you're gonna be a member of the church of the lamb that was slain, this is what we govern by. This is who we are. This is what we govern by. All right. Now the controversial one. I believe, I'm gonna give you a statement of belief. I believe that what makes God worthy of worship is that he is the creator. There is no other. Are you with me? Only one way that anyone is to live and that we have to come to God. He is the only life giver. He is the only one that has been able to create and give life. That was my statement of belief. I need you to hear that before I say this. Because having said that, I've come to the conclusion that the world we live in currently here, the one speck, okay, that is not conquered by the lamb, the one speck in all the universe, this world was created by Satan. It was created by the dragon. Now, I'm not saying anything that was mentioned in the first uh, chapter of Genesis. I'm not saying any of that. Satan could not give life. However, he altered creation to create a way of life for those creatures that were given life by the creator. Are you with me? Is it okay if I go on or do I need to explain any further that I just called Satan a creator? You know what I'm saying, right? He didn't create life. He altered life. He created life on this planet. And when did he do it? after he lost that war. See, he lost that war. His way did not make it in heaven, so he was cast down where? He was cast down here and told to prove it. If you really think that your way of life, if you really think that it is life, then go down and try to create your own. And that's what he did here. Are you with me? That's what I mean when I say that Satan was a creator. You know, we're, we're told that, that, that the father came to Lucifer and pleaded with him. We don't know how long this was. Uh, pleaded with him, you know, in this. Uh, you know, talking about how Michael and his angels were fighting before the rebellion, you know. I, you know, uh, we'll get to that fight in a minute. But, but he said that, that he pleaded with him. He, he, he gave him a way out. He offered him a way to repent. And Lucifer just, uh, you know, refused. And he said, what's your beef? What, what, you know, what, what is the matter? And he says, I want to be you. And what's God's answer to that? He said, I'm sorry, there's only what? There's only one. 
I'm sorry, really. And in order to be able to prove that to him, he told Satan, he told Lucifer, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the laboratory, go into the lab and create something. Go on. And if you can create something, I'll, I'll call you a co-creator. And I had a professor at PUC said that he went into the lab and that's how we got the onion. That's all he could do. I like onions, but apparently there are some who don't. I would say it's how we got the Brussels prop. So when the ones who were created to rule this world gave it over to the dragon, gave it over to the serpent, he began to form a creation in his own image. Remember I told you that we're gonna talk about creation, we're gonna talk about the creative forces of both, we're gonna talk about how each of those gods get things done, how each of those creators get things done. So when God created the world, there was a universal rule he put in place to govern it. Satan comes to try a different governing force, another creation, and his creation has its own language also. Listen to his language. For God knows that when you eat of it, speaking to Eve, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This was his argument to the woman. God is keeping something from you. He does not trust you. And it sounds just like him in the war in heaven, doesn't he? I want to be creator. You're keeping it from me because you don't trust me. You say that you love me, but you don't. Because if I rebel, you're just going to kill me. How is that freedom? That's the accuser. And he takes the accuser right to who? Right to Eve. He tells her, this is how I found God to be. He creates a conflict where there was no conflict. He gets Eve to question her trust of this father, to question his love for her. He's keeping the good stuff from you. He's not giving, he's keeping. Satan begins a division where there was none. Satan convinces Eve, if she's gonna have it in for herself, she needs to begin to what? She needs to begin to take. She needs to take it. You're not safe with him. You need to begin to take your own safety. Then it says, the eyes of both of them were what? Were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Naked, but now hiding. Keeping that which they were created each for from them now. Do you understand? If you've often wondered how Adam and Eve can walk around the garden completely naked and, and, and not feel any sort of remorse or shame or anything else, it's because they were absolutely safe with each other. Eve was not in it for herself. Adam was not in it for himself. I like to say sometimes that after this happened, the reason that she's getting dressed is because now there's a look in Adam's eye she's never seen before. Why? Because now she belongs to who? And she's never seen that before. He's going to begin to what? He's going to begin to take. So she begins to what? 
she begins to take herself and back off. And Adam does the same thing. Shame, lust, all of this now comes in because those are all emotions that are now part of our DNA that have to do with selfishness, that have to do with taking and no longer what? And no longer giving. By the way, as soon as they cover themselves up from each other, they run into a bush and they deprive themselves of who? The first thing he has to say is, where are you? I'm hiding because I was afraid of you. So now they're even backing themselves off from God. Pastor Gary at, at Glendale, Gary Venden, said, basically what we did is that we broke up with our husband and we married another. And we accepted the dragon's invitation to live his life, to live in his creation, and to worship him. They keep themselves from each other, they keep themselves from the life giver. They take away his joy, they take away the relationship that they had, the whole reason that they were created. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Why? Why is it now that Adam can rule over Eve? Why? Because, and I get in trouble when I say this, but for the most part, when you have one gender, if you will, for the most part, who might have a bit more physical strength than the other, and you now give that gender a selfish nature, what's gonna happen? I told you before, I've included, you know, when, when God looks at the earth just before the flood and he says, and, and Moses tells us that the whole world was filled with violence. That Hebrew word for violence encompasses all violence. Every violence that you can think of, of humanity against humanity. And rape and submission and murder and slavery and racism and every ism that you can think about is all mixed up in that. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat plants of the field. It'll no longer what? The ground will no longer give because the ground now has to protect itself from the selfishness of the human. See, Satan's creation has a governing force too. If God's is love, then what would you call the ruling force that the dragon uses? The ruling force where the weak are preyed upon and only the strong survive, even to the point where entire species of living things adapt and change and function to make sure that the species survival is maintained. What do you call that? It's called evolution, right? It's called evolution. Evolutionary thought, evolutionary process has one, uh, one mantra, if you will, only the strong survive. Now, I don't believe that evolution is the origin of any living thing, especially humankind. I don't think we got here because of an evolutionary process. But evolution certainly is the ruling creative force of this world where all God's living things have had to live since the fall. We have to live here and play by these rules. 
Evolution is the perfect rule of creation in a world that no longer is capable of the love that it was created for. You with me? You like that statement? I mean, not maybe like it, but it is right, right? Evolution is the perfect rule of creation in a world that is no longer capable of the love in which it was created. We have a new nature, and our nature is evolutionary. We're perfectly good with it. We're fine with process. We're fine where the weak die off in order for the strong to survive. We're fine with teaching that there is a, a process where there had to be death interjected before there was sin. And, and there was death and there was life and there was death and there was life for 570 million years until finally we got us. That's a whole lot of death mixed in with what's supposed to be called what? Life. See, ever since Darwin began developing the tenets of evolution, the debate has been whether or not evolution is a basis for origin. Uh, uh, in other words, we have now pitted science and religion against each other, and the fight has been over which theory is right, creation versus evolution. So the debate between the two theories becomes the focus. By the way, by the way, the, the debate is evolution itself. Because when the evolutionists began to preach and teach uh, their new way, their new way of creation and life, what did we do? What did the church do? We fought back. And whose rules did we play by? Theirs. We went looking for more evidence. We want more evidence. We want to be able to prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt that these evolutionists are idiots. And I've heard words like that used by creationists. So it's amazing that even the debate over evolution versus creation plays by evolution's rules. And the church has no problem with it, right? And what gets lost in the whole debate is not whether the evolution is the basis of origin. It exists, it's well at work. Evolution is here because it can be observed, it can be measured, and, and we see its maintenance, do we not? Darwin was just reporting what he saw. But evolution as the governing rule of this planet has been since the fall, well before the beginning, before the fall, because apparently the dragon tried to use it where? He tried to use it in heaven. He fought a war a particular way with Michael and his angels, and it didn't cut it. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. See, evolution is a thought process. It's a reflex. It's in our DNA. He got tossed down, and this was the world where now he gets to prove whether or not evolution is a way to rule a kingdom. You with me? He was told there was no way to, ruin, to, to rule heaven, right? So he gets to try it here. And we know that, right? We understand that the earth is the stage on which the great controversy has played out. That's the controversy, y'all. Whether or not God is a God of love or not and whether or not evolution can be a way of life. 
See, the first evolutionists assumed that uncivilized peoples had primitive brains. See, that's one of the rules of evolution, is that we don't evolve any further than what nature requires us to be. You with me? Remember, uh, I don't know if there's gonna be a lesson about it, Sam, but the crucible in which nature is formed is nature, right? So our nature is formed in the crucible of what's around us. Evolution says that we can evolve and adapt to the crucible. So we don't have to go any further than what is required of us, of, of our surroundings, of our environment, of our culture. By the way, and that's the one thing, is that it continues to perpetuate the worse the crucible gets. These past three years, how many people uh, have, have talked about it? This is one time in my life that, that at least some things have happened where we are not waking up every day saying, well, the human spirit will get us through. <laughs> you know, we're, we're gonna rise above this. Even those people are starting to wonder, right? So the first evolutionists assumed that uncivilized people, in other words, their culture, the people that they would call uncivilized, they had primitive brains because their primitiveness did not allow their brains to develop beyond what was needed of them. Yes, and it's horrible, it's t terrible language. Uh, Darwin used, used words like, um, uh, I, I don't even wanna use it from the pulpit, but horrible names that they called them, these uncivilized tribes. If they're genetically inferior and incapable of higher thought, then what does a genetically superior being with a fallen nature end up doing with them? Pretty much whatever we want, right? So if they're beyond what they could, you know, what their culture will bring them, then why not enslave them and have them do work that they were created to do? And by the way, that's how evolution as an ideology fed the church's theology so much that we changed our theology in order to justify enslaving other human beings. We did it for 600 years. And in some places, those seeds are still in place. But I don't know if you've ever heard of Alfred Wallace. Alfred Wallace was the co-founder of the theory of evolution with Darwin. He asked Darwin the question that he never answered. And not by choice, he couldn't. He couldn't answer it. Wallace went to native lands to study the primitive peoples. They assumed that they were primitive because their brains had not developed far enough down the evolutionary scale. And what he found disturbed him greatly, and what he found disturbed him greatly and summarized his disturbance in one question. That was, how was an organ, the human brain, developed so far beyond the needs of its possessor? Because you know what he did when he showed up in those native lands? He decided to do something. Rather than watch them at their skills as hunters and fishermen, you know, and builders and all of that, he decided to teach them calculus. And guess what? They learned it. So the question he asked was, how is it that their brain had developed to the point, 
Because natural selection doesn't explain that. Natural selection endowed, uh, and here's the word, savage with a brain a little superior to that of an ape, whereas he actually possesses one, but very little inferior to the one of average members of learned societies. Those ones, those people that we're calling savages, they can learn the way we've learned. And his theory then was blown out the window. And on his way out of that classroom, he asked Darwin, how is it that this happened? And evolutionists don't have an answer. It caused Wallace to turn to a higher power for an adequate explanation of the development of humanity. We must therefore admit the possibility that in the development of the human race, a higher intelligence has guided the same laws for nobler ends. How about that? The creator of evolution. The theory. The dragon's a creator of evolution. But the theory even began to turn to a higher power. I'm not saying that he was born again. I'm not saying he became a Christian. You know, don't, don't let anybody tell you that. He was just saying that our, our theory no longer cuts it anymore. So remember I talked before about what kind of fighting, what, what Michael must have been doing before the rebellion, what kind of conquering was happening? See, we, we switch off a switch when we start talking about war and now we go back to Michael and his angels and we assume, we assume that this whole love your neighbor as yourself thing is okay up until a point because apparently the Bible says that, the, that Michael fights too and that he goes to war. And in Revelation, we've got all kinds of images of Jesus as a warrior except for one thing. Always the sword that he's holding in Revelation is never in his hand, it's coming out of his what? It's coming out of his mouth. And war is a completely different definition with the lamb that was slain rules of creation versus the dragon's rules of creation. See, a war starts when an act of violence or oppression creates a reaction. Right? Jesus said if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, do what? Turn, okay? Because what's your first instinct? Hit him back, right? And then when you do that, what's gonna happen? Gonna hit you. And you do that, and then what's gonna happen? By the way, after about two or three, the reason that you were hit in the first place is lost, right? Because now the fight is about the last one. So what did Jesus say to do? Stop it before it starts. But we say, but Lord, what about this cheek? It's really starting to hurt. Jesus said, watch me in a couple of years. You know, if nothing else, turning the other cheek stops the process. Right? If nothing else. In 1994, Rwanda's population of seven million was composed of three ethnic groups. Hutu, approximately 85%, Tutsi, 14%, and Twa, 1%. In the early 1900s, Hutu extremists within Rwanda's political elite blamed the entire Tutsi minority population for the country's increasing social, economic, and political pressures. The Hutu remembered uh, past years of oppressive Tutsi rule. So in other words, back in the 1800s, it was the Tutsis that ruled. 
and the Hutu now in power with 85% versus 14%, now remember that. And they begin to blame them for everything that's going on in Rwanda in the 90s. On April 6, 1994, a plane carrying President Habi Ramana, a Hutu, was shot down. Violence began almost immediately after that. Under the cover of war, Hutu extremists launched their plans to destroy the entire Tutsi civilian population. After killing high-profile leaders first, Tutsi, uh, Tutsi and people suspected of being Tutsi were killed in their homes, and as they tried to flee at roadblocks set up across the country during the genocide. Entire families were killed at a time. Women were systematically and brutally raped. It's estimated that some 200,000 people participated in the perpetuation of the Rwandan genocide. In the weeks after April 6, 1994, 800,000 men, women, and children perished in this genocide, perhaps as many as three quarters of the Tutsi population. At the same time, thousands of Hutu were murdered because they opposed the killing campaign and the forces directing it. Because somebody oppressed somebody 100 years before, and now economic and other things happening in a country, 14% of the population, a minority, was blamed for all of that. And they were just looking for one reason to go to war. And this wasn't a war, it was what? It was genocide. It was a reaction to something. It was a reaction to somewhere. I think it was a reaction that goes all the way back to the garden. You can't have me anymore. By the way, a right theology and a present truth does nothing, apparently, in a time like this. I, we know of at least one Adventist pastor that was convicted of a war crime because he pretended to offer his church as a sanctuary for Tutsis, and then once they were all in, he notified Hutu authorities as to who was in the church and when, and they came and they hacked them all to death. See, now we hear this and, and, and we believe, well, that's not us. You know, we don't use that kind of war. We're conquerors, right? All of us are conquerors. But think about it. Can't evangelism sometimes in this country be just a tad evolutionary? We begin by othering unbelievers, right? We, be, we make them the others. We call them unbelievers. We call them outsiders. We call them unchurched. Because we believe that we've got something better for them. In other words, we're better than they are. Doesn't our evangelism smack of that just a little bit? Worship on the right day. Not the wrong day, but the right day. Have the right diet, not the wrong diet. Etc., etc., etc. Evangelicalism is as... as um, taking this to an extreme. Uh, one pastor that I, that I heard preach, a, a pastor of a, a huge megachurch, began preaching uh, a, a series, uh, and he, he begins it by showing this picture that I told you of, of Jesus in Revelation 19. You know, he's, he's, he's wearing this robe, and on his thigh it says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's given a steed, you know, and everything else, this whole, whole picture, and he's given a sword, and the sword comes out of his mouth, and he, go, and he goes, and he, and he slays, in, in other words, millions. But again, where's the sword coming out of? 
It's coming out of his mouth. Do we really believe? Do we really believe after all this that in the end he's gonna show up with a sword in his hand and begin murdering unbelievers? He believes it. Because he said, he noted, he said, he, he said, I wanted to tell you that this picture in Revelation 19 is my favorite picture of Jesus and he even called him Thug Jesus. It's Thug Jesus. Jesus, you, you, he said, you as humanity, we as humanity, we had one shot to defeat Jesus. It didn't happen and it isn't gonna happen again and he's gonna make sure it doesn't happen. In other words, defining Jesus' war as an evolutionary war. And then it ends up completely shading and painting. And we read these definitions because we forget what rules we live by. We forget what God we worship. And it completely shades how we read prophecy, how we read all of this. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent's called the devil. Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down. But they, guess who? They, us, we're the comrades by the way. We're the brothers and sisters, he just said. And they're rejoicing over us that the dragon was thrown down here because it gives us then the opportunity to conquer him. And how is he conquered here? By what? By the blood of the lamb. See, <laughs> the difference between the two kingdoms, the difference between the two wars, the difference between the two definitions of conquer is that we do it by what? by his blood, by a martyr's blood, not an evolutionary war. We don't use force, we don't use fear, we don't use oppression, we don't use violence. And by the way, does it matter how violent the world gets? That maybe the world will get so violent that he'll let us off the hook, right? And, and all of a sudden say, okay, Janine, you've had enough. Go ahead. You don't have to turn the other cheek anymore. Do we think that that's really going to happen? But we seem to act like it in these end times when it comes to treating other people. We begin to use evolutionary rules of war. And as I said, oppression, violence, fear, coercion. And we have no problem using them because we think we're right. And we'll talk more about this. But we fight a martyr's war. Martyrs don't win by killing. They win by what? They win by dying. Rejoice then, he says. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devils come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is what? That his time is short. But us here, we've already conquered because of the lamb. See, we've already won this war that we're being asked to fight. He's already conquered. And by the way, because he's conquered, you and I have conquered. We're already conquerors. If we live and worship under these rules of the church of the lamb that was slain, 
Jesus conquered by love, by the giving of himself. Martyrs conquered just by doing that. See, I come to believe that it, that it has this overarching way of how we read and interpret prophetic living if we don't look at both gods side by side and compare the reasons for worshiping them and compare how they operate. They both operate by war. One is an evolutionary war that's won by force and strength and numbers. By the way, when the dragon comes here, he really thinks he lost because he didn't have enough numbers. So the first thing he does when he's thrown down here is he's gonna raise up two allies, two beasts. I was defeated by that God because there were three wrapped up into one. I'm gonna go get my own three. He really believes that he wasn't strong enough because he was willing to kill, but he wasn't willing to what? He wasn't willing to die. So now try to imagine whatever the fighting was that Michael and, Michael and his angels were doing. They weren't doing it with fists and swords. They were turning the other cheek so many times that it just wore the dragon out. And if you think about it sometimes, that if you do offer that cheek enough times, it's gonna wear them out eventually. That's how Muhammad Ali won like his last 10 fights, right? He just let him hit him. And yeah, it is a possibility Will there be one time, one more times than we can handle that we can't turn the other cheek anymore. And it may take our lives. It may cost our lives. But praise God that we have participated in the victory that he had already conquered and given to us. Amen. Just conquered by love. See, martyrs don't conquer by wounding or killing. They do it by dying. Just one last quick story. The Anabaptists were a group that was persecuted in the, in the Middle Ages at the other end of the Reformation. They're a Reformation Protestant group, but they were, they were not well liked by Catholics or by other Protestants, and they were one of the very few, uh, and we'll talk about the Anabaptists as we get further along in Revelation 13, but um, they, were, uh, they were persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants. Persecuted to the point of being martyred. And the way that, since they were Anabaptists, what they attacked first was the practice of infant baptism. They said that you can't baptize babies because babies don't have what? They're not, they're not of an age of accountability, right? So, so Anabaptists believe that you got baptized as you were an adult and you could make a decision. You could make a loving decision, right? A decision on whether or not to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and then pray that you will love your neighbor as yourself. So they were hated for that because at a time when two out of three children were not living past the age of three, in other words, you had to have five children in order for two to survive. They believed that that group was condemning all those babies to hell, right? Because the church taught that you could not be saved without being what? Without being baptized, so they were hated by Catholics. They were hated by Protestants. All the Protestant groups that practiced infant baptism, they practiced for the same reason, because they were living at a time with an 80% mortality rate. So we may call them idiots if you want to. We may call them stupid for baptizing children. But it was reality. 
They didn't want all those babies to live where? They didn't want all those babies to live in hell. See, and that's a, to me, that's a definition of othering. We say infant baptism, and we, and we go, jeez, poor, uninformed Catholics. Right? They did it for a reason. But this one group comes along and says this. So, so they, were, they were hated. They, they were condemning all of these babies. So when it came time to martyr them, when it came time to persecute them to their deaths, to really shut them up, because they believed that their God gave them permission to, that they, could, that they could eliminate heretics by killing them. By the way, their God did give them permission to do that. They thought that the best way to martyr them was to drown them. So they would put them in sacks. And if it were Protestants doing it, the, the southern Protestants in Switzerland, they would do it in Lake Zurich and, and uh, the Calvinists would do it in Lake Geneva. They would, they would put them in these, sac these weighted sacks and they would roll them out to the middle of the lake and they would just throw them in. If you believe that you want to be baptized, we'll baptize you now. But what would happen is, is that it takes about 15 minutes to strip somebody, put them in a sack, bound them, and then row them out to the middle of a lake. And what happened was that the Anabaptists preached from the time that they were standing on the shore to the time that they were rowed out. Some would preach, some would sing, but they all had about 20 minutes to do it to the crowd on shore. And what began to happen is that when they would toss this one in the water and they would row back, there would be five people in the water being baptized. See, the dragon will teach us that we could win a war quicker than that and a lot less messy. But we're members of the church of the lamb that was slain. Amen. And we live in a church today on the blood of martyrs. And I don't know what's in, in store for any of us. Right? It could be our blood. But it does win the war. It won it so much that they had to change their tactics. First thing now that they did when they captured Anabaptists is that they would cut out their tongues. So I know what this is. I know what I'm talking about. This is not an academic exercise. And I think the last three years have taught us this. Don't you feel it, Sam? This is beyond just teaching this in Sabbath school. We're living this now. But as I've pointed out before, we get to do it because we've already conquered because of the blood of the lamb. And when we forget that, we have each other in this church, you and me, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we can lift each other up, encourage one another, and make sure that we all get to the finish line together. Amen. That's what we're here for. It's so that no one misses the grace of God. So uh, it's just a horrible message, uh, a horrible gospel that is also unspeakably beautiful. So I went way over my time today, but thank you all. Thank you for hanging in there. And this is what we'll continue to look. Now that we know the two gods and how they operate, how do we begin to tell them apart now? Because he's had quite a few years to disguise it and the lamb that the slain message never ever changes.
right? Okay. Thank you again for, for holding on with me.